the most uh, instructive thing in this period was how much I was being rejected. <laughs> because the rejection, you know, I was submitting poems places and I was submitting scripts places and uh, getting rejected. And, and, and if you're if you're honest with yourself, you say, that's because I, I, I don't know something. You know, I may have talent and I may have a proclivity for this, but I don't know something. It's not just like not having connections. I think people blame connections most of the time. But when you're good, you're good. Mm-hmm. And, it, and at that point, it was really being honest with myself and saying, not getting it because I'm not necessarily good. There's so much stuff I have to work on. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to Hollywood Hustle Podcast, where we share the stories and struggles of artists climbing the ladder of success and how they survived the city of dreams, Los Angeles. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. As always, I am your host, Daniel Tuttle. Thank you so much for joining us for a new interview series. Woo woo! Today, we are bringing you an amazing interview with one of my favorite people in the world. I've known him for over 10 years. He is one of my best friends, and he is just so knowledgeable. So I can't wait for you to hear the interview. I'll get more on that in a second. But first of all, I just want to thank you guys for kind of working with us last week and hopefully enjoying the uncut episode of Act 2 with Michael Tucker. We're looking at launching a Patreon in the fall, and this was kind of a chance to preview what we're hoping to add on as a reward on one of the tiers. Sometimes when we record, we take out stories or you know jokes or any kind of bits because it takes away from the flow of the episode or makes the episode too long and we thought this would be a cool thing to add on for a reward for people who support us that may want to just hear a little bit more now these won't be like you know lord of the rings extended edition long or they're four hours long but they may add a little extra 10 or 15 minutes to the show and maybe a few more laughs or uh, pieces of advice for you guys or get to know us or the guests a little more in maybe a personal way. So we hope you enjoyed it. We're looking at doing that and we're really excited about it. So it is not available anymore if you're listening to this on Tuesday or Wednesday. It, we took it down. Keep keep an ear out. We'll keep bringing up the Patreon as we go along, giving more information as it gets closer to launching. So keep an eye out. If you haven't yet, please go to our iTunes and leave us a review. Those help us kind of rise in the ranks and get noticed more on iTunes. Let's people know about the show a little more and maybe why you guys like it. So if you haven't, please go give us a review. It doesn't have to be five stars. We're not asking. We would love it. But if you have some issues with the show, please make it whatever you feel it needs to be. And that'll help us know what we need to do better. Also, if you have any questions or comments or anything about any of the episodes previous to this one, or even maybe about what we're going to do for our Patreon or how we podcast, send us an email at hollywoodhustlepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at LA Hustlecast and on Instagram at Hollywood Hustle Podcast. So definitely check those places out. We, we love engaging with you guys. We love chatting with you guys. We want to know about your hustle, what you're doing. And if you want to send us pictures, we're trying to do some stuff on Instagram where we're sharing pictures of people's hustles. So if you're having meetings, if you're working at a desk, if you're writing, if you're out at a, you know at a park just writing or or playing a guitar, like send us those pictures. If you're on set, whatever, we want to share those. So send us those to HollywoodHustlePodcast at gmail.com and we will share those. Make sure you give us your Instagram or Twitter handle and let us know kind of what your hustle is and who you are a little bit so we can share that. We, we would just love to do that. Please make sure the pictures are of some high quality just because that's the social media world we live in. You got to have high quality photos. Uh, So make sure they're not too blurry or anything like that, but we would appreciate that. Today, we're talking to one of my oldest friends. I've known him for 10 years. That sounds sad, oldest friend (laughs) in 10 years, but I've known him for a long time. 
and it feels like longer in a good way. He is one of the nicest people you ever meet. He would literally give you the shirt off his back. He is a producer, a writer, a storyteller, a poet. He has a book on Amazon called A Place Where Runaways Hide. It's a poetry book, a collection of poems. It is so good. Definitely check it out. And he's just one of the smartest guys I've ever met. I I go to him for advice, information, to vent, to just chat, just to have a good time. He, he can fulfill all of those. He was also a producer on a very successful web series called Buffering, which you can check out. In this episode, we discuss where he grew up, having a family that wasn't really in the arts and how they handled him being in the arts and how they supported him, how he grew to love books so much. He reads a ton of books. We talk about why directing's not for him and why producing is, how he handles producing, where poetry came from into his life and how he started writing it and his process for writing. That and so much more. It's a great episode. You're going to love it. So please grab your scarves and your chai lattes and your pad and pencil and please enjoy this Act One discussion with my good friend, Mike Tobias. Thank you, guys. I am here today with one of my... I would say best friends and enemies. Uh, He is a poet, a writer, a producer. He's from Arlington, Texas. He has won awards. He has published his own stuff. He creates websites. He created our website. He's a man of many trades, and he's probably one of the most well-read people I've ever met. It truly is my honor to have one of my best friends on today, Mr. Mike Tobias. Hey, Mike. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Let's take that again. The one of the worst people I've ever met. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I've got to be real. If I'm not real, then I'm not. People have to know the terrible things I do in this world. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for being on with us. Thank Uh, you. We've known each other for a long time. Absolutely. Um, Can you do you know how long we've known each other? I mean, I I could years maybe. I could. Well, I'd actually probably venture ten, probably, 10, yeah, because yeah. it's 2018. Yeah, probably ten years. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. too long. A decade. It's <laughs> too long to know each other. We're decade bros. We're decade bros. <laughs> De bros. <laughs> well, uh, you know, one of the things that I find, you know, Mike moved out here a while back. We'll talk about more in detail, obviously, about it. Uh, moved to Los Angeles a while back before I did. And one of the things that really helped me was I, I kept in touch with Mike. We would talk probably every other week at least for on sure. the phone for about an hour. Um, He kept me updated on what he was doing, and it really gave me the confidence to move here when we decided to move here. So thank you, Mike, for just being that contact here that kind of kept supporting me from afar and just really being that comfort when I moved here. I I really appreciate that. Yeah. I wanted to say that on the podcast so people could go, Oh, decade bros. <laughs> so let's kind of start. Where are you from? Where were you born? What were your parents like growing up? Do you have any brothers or sisters? Just kind of start from there. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm an only child who grew up in Texas in a, a little place sandwiched between Dallas and Fort Worth called Arlington, uh, also known as Fun Central. Sure. Because <laughs> they had all the amusement parks and whatnot. Mm. I was raised in a fairly good household uh, for becoming an artist because they just let me do as I pleased, whether it was, you know, singing or acting or even painting and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. And I think they'd, uh, <laughs> they don't know the monster they've unleashed. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Cause like my dad one time uh, almost like admonished me and said, like, uh, I don't want you to become a Jack of all trades. I prefer that you become a master of something. And I have not, I've not taken that advice. <laughs> it literally, truly, it feels like every week Mike's like, you know what? 
I'm studying for a cure of cancer now. <laughs> yeah. What? I, I wish. Think, I think you were writing poetry. No, no, no I moved no, on. No, no. Yeah. No, 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 I'm still doing that. No, I'm still, I'm still trying to fear, find the cure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm finding a cure for poetry, writing a play, screenplays, and I'm producing yeah. three features. I'm, I'm, but you know what? I really want to add more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Schedule. Well, it, well, it's interesting because like I've uh, also read three books. I've also read three. Oh man, I wish I could read that much. I mean, I I read a, a lot, but um, sometimes it's hard keeping up, especially if you're writing. I mean, if you're not, if you're not reading, you're not writing. But they've been very encouraging, and the fact that they wanted me to like. Uh, really appreciate different arts. Was there a book series for you when you were a kid that kind of really got you into reading? Like for me, yeah. it was the Boxcar Children. Boxcar Children too. I yeah, really same, got same into here. those books, and yeah. like that's kind of what guided me into books. Was yeah. the Boxcar Children? Yeah, it's interesting too because like uh, I think mystery books uh, for writers are the ultimate like reading. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's like stuff like you know literature that's good. You know, Toni Morrison are some of my favorites, mm-hmm. but. A good old fashioned mystery, especially when you're a kid, uh, is so great because it's it's the most essential way you can tell a story. Mm-hmm. Something is not known and it forces these characters to go try to find what that is. And they end up learning other things along the way and eventually finding, you know, uncovering the person who is committing the crimes or well, it's funny that there's something that's haunted me since I was in elementary school. I, I, I borrowed this book and it was this like dark m- murder mystery set in like a cove area, like near the ocean. And I remember reading it. I was so into it. And then I lost the book and oh, literally was wow. so close to the end of the book uh, to find out like what happened. And I like to this day has like haunted me that I never finished <laughs> you that just book. Wake up in a, in a sweat going, <laughs> going ah, what happened? <laughs> um, what's your first memory of you know imagination or creation? Is it from books or you know did you write stories when you were a, a little wee lad? Or oh, you know like uh, uh, it was always definitely um, playing pretend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, actually, I'll, I'll admit that like when I was young and playing pretend with my cousin. Uh, uh, who's female? Um, I I would always Michael Scott, the pretend like she would she would try to like pretend like we're we're at house and we're you know getting stuff ready and stuff like that, and then I'd be like, but then the spies came. I was such a dramatic child. I'm like, and then the fire just engulfed the yard and we had to run now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. What's happening? And she was like, wait. I thought we were just like. <laughs> and that I remember you doing that when we did it. Yeah, I do that. I still college. do it. Yeah, I still do. I'm it. like, all right. Thank you so much for coming to the grocery store. There's a fire. <laughs> wait, what? Sometimes you gotta shake up life. <laughs> but you always, it's always a fire. It's always a fire. <laughs> just like Michael Scott's always a gun. Yeah. You're always yeah. a fire. And then, and then uh, I cried wolf too much, and California started burning. <laughs> <laughs> you caused this. I caused the fire. <laughs> We know who started the fire now. That's awesome. So you played with your cousin. You played yeah. different games. Um, how did this kind of lead to your discovery of like theater or film? Yeah. So actually, um, I had no interest uh, for a long time. Uh, well, thanks for coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In middle school, I thought I was going to be uh, uh, an artist of some sort because, I mean, like I was nearly failing every class except for uh, art class. Which, the true signs of an artist. Yeah, true signs of an artist. I was even in a, at my middle school, and I, I don't know if it's still this way, uh, because both speech and art were not considered real things. You could only do them half a half a year. Mm-hmm. So you do one semester in speech and you do the other half in art. Um, Sounds like Texas. Exactly, yeah. And it's so funny because like I got through the speech half really just, you know, I nonchalantly didn't really care. 
uh, I was good at it. I was, it was one of the only classes I was passing <laughs> and, and I got to the art side and I love the art so much that I just focused everything in there. And I was like, I want to be an artist. No question about it. And, uh, um, I, I just happened at the same time to sing since I'd been like four, um, because for church and stuff like that, church productions. So really the church productions were as good as I got, but I could never at any point, you know, up until the age of 15, see myself really being like, this is a serious thing. I just thought that was like a thing you audition for every now and then, and then you just like, you do it and it's fun. And then you, it's not a real life. <laughs> it's, it's cause it's at church and it's, it's something for Sundays and, you know, mm-hmm. um, not during the week, people go to jobs during the week. But then I, uh, I met a friend in eighth grade who his mission in life was to become a singer performer at that time. And his name was Mike Tobias. His name was Mike Tobias. I found him within me. <laughs> and, oh, I was going like a talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, then I, and then I killed him. Your name is like life. Joe Rabowski. Yeah. Joe Rabowski. Became Mike Tobias. Honest. Uh, yeah. And so uh, he was like, do you want to just require? He's like, because I heard you can sing. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. Um, you know, I'm kind of like shy when I audition, so I don't really know if it's going to turn into anything. But I auditioned, I made the top choir, um, which was very shocking to me, and found out that the top members of the top choir have to audition for the musicals every year in high school um, because the drama club was so small mm-hmm. that they had to pull people from choir to make sure this big production got done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, I was thinking, okay, I could do singing um, and art started to fade already. And I was like, uh, maybe, maybe I can, uh, do singing, but I have to go do these musicals. There's no, like, there's no part of my brain that was like, oh, this is now new and exciting and fun. It would take like a couple years of high school for me to like, say, I'm starting to really enjoy this. I mm-hmm. love the people who get involved with theater. So it wasn't kind of a natural thing right at no, first for you. you no. It took some time for you to kind of get comfortable and yeah. like, find the joy in it, I guess. And then I, yeah, really, really funnily enough went to musicals before uh, I got to like, you know, regular writing of, you know, writing a, a, a scene that doesn't have a singer. In it. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until like literally high school year that I'd been auditioning for plays the entire time. Um, just like uh, trying to figure out if that's going to be something I want to do. Not talented enough to get into any of the plays, except for maybe like my, Oh, my favorite, my favorite role that I've ever played on stage was uh nazi number three <laughs> i can't remember the name of the play uh i probably should have researched it or something about some girl that lives yeah. in an attic for a it's, while no no it's uh maybe maybe it's that one. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> now that i'm thinking about maybe it's that one but um for time but maybe? but the whole play my character doesn't exist because it's a nazi so mm-hmm. it's all the all the jewish characters and they're striving through this mm-hmm. and uh at the end of the play there's Nazis marching in the distance. And I think that's all that's written in the play. Uh, there was no need for real German Nazis. <laughs> and so here comes this Mexican Nazi at the end of the play with two other people. We've just sitting, been sitting backstage. Hola. <laughs> and our only part is to like, Walk on stage and march. Miamo Nazi. <laughs> yeah, Miamo Nazi. <laughs> and, and that was, that was the, that was the first role I actually ever had. But it was fun because you just hang out backstage, chilling with people. Like people come off stage and you're like, hey, what's up? How's it going out there? Well, I love that you didn't take to it right away. Like you yeah. took to the arts in general, yeah, in general, but not to it right away because that's different from a lot of our other guests. We haven't had a lot of guests. Usually it's like, this is where I'm meant to be. Exactly. You know? yeah. um, do you Did you guys have a th- 
you know, in our high school, we kind of had this, like, uh, you could tell our director or our, our theater head had a certain uh, uh, love of certain themes. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of our plays had a lot of the same ideals. Is that, did you see that in high school? Did y'all do a lot of, not the same stuff, but there was at least one part that kind of you know, always was um, the same. One thing that I'm, I'm really grateful for, because uh, it, it really has influenced so many things, is that uh, not only did uh, the theater uh, had have like uh, a love of like 1930s comedy Mm -hmm. um it was something that he really kind of like allowed us to really embrace in terms of musicals Mm because musicals a lot of them are based on that particular kind of humor Mm -hmm. so you know stuff like guys and dolls and then uh we did senior year arsenic and old lace. Oh, such a good one, which is great. I mean, it's it's just one of the. I I still think one of the best written comedies. You know, off off stage, besides the, the plays he was producing and putting on, uh, there was still that same love and in him introducing us mm-hmm. to stuff that was very much like that. We didn't do a lot of comedies. A lot of ours, oh, we did a lot of dramas. The only comedy I remember him being a part of was a different. Our other director did, which is interesting because like we both, you know, when when Daniel and I met, we kind of came together over the fact that we were both doing improv, improv and yeah, comedy, comedy yeah. at the same time well and, as a as a big guy i had yeah. to learn how to be funny <laughs> yeah. really early um but the, i remember the play we did was called blackout i don't know if you've oh, ever done yeah, it I remember blackout. but it was yeah. it's if you if you ever want to do a really funny kind of satire uh quick-witted like noises off type play yeah. uh blackout is great because it's set during a blackout in this apartment but when the lights are on the lights go off on stage and when the lights are off in the show, in the in the world of the show, the lights go on on stage. Yeah, so, so, kind of saying, so there's some weird blackout moment. It's really funny. So I highly suggest <laughs> if you ever get a chance to do that one. Um, so you you went through high school. You started doing yeah. theater. You went to University of North Texas. Yeah, um, what was your focus in uh, college, and kind of did it change as you went? As some people, you know, that happens. Yeah. You know, what was your initial focus, and how did it change by the time you graduated? Yeah. So I mean, like literally. Uh, I had no plan of what I was going to do in college or with my life. <laughs> and at the admissions thing, I uh, I said, well, you know, I've been doing musicals. I understand how they're built really well. I guess we can say a, a growing theme was like uh, I kept I kept wanting to write something, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to write. Um, I, I, I dabbled writing a musical in, in uh, senior year. And I said, like, crazily enough, I was like, could that be a career? Could actually be a musical theater writer? I mean, like. I only know like four that have ever existed <laughs> in the world. So it doesn't seem like a very good market to jump into. It's, it seems very rare. And, and uh, at, at the admissions uh, orientation, they, they ask that you say, what are you going to do? Are you going to do physics? Or are you going to do music? Or are you going to do law? And I put down, I'm going to write musicals. And so they're like, all right, well, there is a musical theater program here. So you can actually, it's, performative but you can actually join it and see if that'll that'll learn so um already i was in the wrong place because <laughs> uh, there was just nothing there that was really going to teach me how to write a musical mm. um and so i was like okay well i'm gonna go ahead and keep performing because i can still perform um it's not foreign to me it's not necessarily what i want to do but i think it'll be it'll be fun to perform while i'm figuring out like on my own how do you write a musical and funnily enough, trying to figure out how to learn how to write a musical pushed me more to how do I write a play or how do I write sketches and stuff like that. And, and, and 
for me, it was almost like a, a, a thing of convenience of like saying, well, I, I can't compose music. I'm not, I can maybe learn how to compose music, but I am nowhere near that skill. Mm-hmm. So the best I'm going to be doing is writing lyrics and the book of a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and a book in musical theater terms is nothing more than just the play of the musical, <laughs> the, right. the actual script. Right. So it just, at some point, like donged on me like oh i should just uh write a, a straight play <laughs> but it seems so intimidating at the time because i was like well i don't really know and then you know straight plays are taken more seriously even if there are comedies mm-hmm. there is something there's almost like a comfort in some musicals and i think people who like musicals can agree some musicals are brilliant mm-hmm. like absolutely i mean obviously like something like hamilton or anything that stephen sondheim's really written um, is absolutely brilliant and you don't even fathom how they could have put something together like that. Mm-hmm. Other musicals, the songs are fantastic and you can't fathom how they put the songs together and you can't fathom how they perform the song, but the scenes between the songs, you go, okay, that's a little, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're so corny and they're so just like, let's get to the song mm-hmm. that there was a part of me that was like comforted by that. I could, I could write that because mm-hmm. I can write sketches. I can write, the pieces between a song and what somebody you else write were, the book. I could write the book. But and, not, then, but not, but and so, not yeah. So the idea of writing a play was a lot more intimidating in terms of like, okay, like how do you even structure that? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just people talking. <laughs> like, and, and you learn obviously later on that it's more than that. And well, like how do you organically go into a song? Exactly. Even that, nowhere, even that is, you know, even like, that's a challenge. That, yeah. You know, how do you transition into that? Yeah. Where it's not like, yes, Maybe I should love you harder. Yeah, yeah. Ba da yeah, hard love. Love, hard love. <laughs> love you harder. <laughs> That's a t- terrible, yeah. terrible song for a musical. Yeah. So, what would you say are some of your highlights from your college years in theater? Um, you know, I, I, we all had to take directing. We all had to take yeah. kind of uh, a play analysis and and writing. You know, what were some of your highlights for you? during this, all these processes. Yeah. I, and, uh, I'd actually say it was, uh, at the same time, uh, that I was doing school, um, I was doing a, a improv troupe, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, it was interesting because like the improv troupe went from being kind of a small thing to, um, having a pretty good audience every time. Mm-hmm. And so we would, you know, we'd only do the show about once a month, but we'd get probably about 80 to a hundred people. Oh, wow. Which was always like, you know, as you as you progress in, in college and, and even go into like your first theater market, you start to realize that audiences aren't always that big until you get to a certain level. So it was kind of interesting for us having to manage money and, and, and manage uh, locations and props. And from that time, I still have the best quote from a friend uh, who is in the troupe uh, that I still tell everybody to say when she says, uh, a script is just a list of things that can go wrong. <laughs> and I, and I love that because like, it's still so true. Even in filmmaking, mm-hmm. it is absolutely so true. Is why did I put that in there? That's just worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was interesting in the fact that like, it was allowing us to write these sketches and, and, uh, and perform them for people. It's even the only time I've ever dabbled in stand-up comedy and I will never do it again. <laughs> some people some people survived their bombing. I, I did not. So you, you did the improv troupe. Did you do any directing while you were no, in, in college? No, I've never had an inkling for directing. That really surprises yeah. me. Yeah. And and I and I feel like there's a part of me that says you'd be you'd be excellent. You'd be an mm-hmm. awesome director. Mm-hmm. And I ignore it. Because <laughs> uh, I'm the, already doing too many <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah. Because the, the the fun about writing is that um it's essentially perfect in your head mm-hmm. um and uh once you get to actual 
directing while you know having done producing stuff producing is very uh, collaborative still but you don't have to balance compromise with vision which i think that's that's a challenge of being a director that i just don't think i'd be willing to make if it's somebody else's decision on a piece of writing i've done that's totally fine and i think also i think you're a natural born supervisor like i think yeah, you're really good yeah. at I, I i was almost said leader but i think supervisor is even <laughs> yeah, a better term. leader but like i think it's a better <laughs> word for it because yeah. you're really good at like getting people to be where they need to be yeah doing what they do the and organizing the space yeah and i think that's that's a big strength you have and oh, that i've you. seen in 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 action and so I think that I think a director, you have to be so focused on one thing. And honestly, I don't know if you could do that <laughs> because yeah, you're such a guy that has obviously. so many multifaceted yeah. uh, uh, options and choices and, and yeah. things you're doing that I think being so focused on one goal would be probably hard for you. Yeah. And, and actually not I, to put you down. I mean, no, 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 you no, couldn't no, do I, it. No, I, I, I totally agree. But I do think there's that that ability to the directors have to improvise and yet stick to a vision. It's that it's that they can get out of that narrow mindedness, but then back into it and come back to being focused and say, okay, this is still the vision. We're back on track. And, you know, the producer's job is just to facilitate that and kind of uh, mitigate it in a way. So it doesn't get too out of hand. Why do you, why do you love film and theater? Like oh. at, at the heart, like what is it about it that like draws you to it? Well, with theater, cause I'll have a little bit to, to, to answer for yeah, different. Absolutely. Um, um, for theater, it's that it's a uh, space to play, no matter what. Um, uh, it is the only place where you really have an attention to ritual and intellectualism. So it's like you're there to experience something and feel something and hopefully uh, come out of it a little bit changed, but also to really learn something deep about, you know, maybe the human condition or society or, or you know, uh, a certain problem that the, the playwrights focus on. Film is so great because it actually brings us into this experience of, of, of sense, I think a little bit closer because for, for the camera being such a big element of it and how the director and cinematographer manage the camera in a performance, something like mother, you couldn't do it. It, it. Mother is very much like a play, but you couldn't do that without a camera guiding you through the right. emotionality of like these characters and these, and these things, uh, which it's just that, that nature of you are looking at something and it almost cannot hide from your gaze in, in a play. You're, you're, you're worried more about tableaus and, and everything, you know, how, how the whole stage and the characters within the stage, what's, what's going on that mm -hmm. with a camera. It's so close at times to something, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you can get some big epic shots of, you know, people crossing the desert or, or whatnot, but, but something like, you know, mother where you have a camera on Jennifer Lawrence the entire time and you're so close and intimate mm -hmm. uh, to her reactions to horrible things that are happening in her house that uh, it's, it's just so much more powerful in that way sometimes where, it's like it's almost like macro versus micro, right. um, and though at times the other one can do one or the other very well, it's just like film has this way of just driving a, a an audience right into the narrative in ways that the other mediums can't. Well, also I think you know 
in film, it's easier to recreate real life. Yeah, then for sure. stage, you really have to work hard to get people exactly. invested. Like these are yeah. real people and, in a real house, you know, exactly. when you're seeing curtain and black all around, you know. And, and actually, uh, my, my advice would be if you're in theater, work against the realism mm-hmm. because you do have an open space. and You can um, like a, there's a really great play called uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, uh, which is the main character. It's based on the book. Has a, He's on the spectrum. Uh, and uh, it's all done kind of where we're a little bit inside his head and how everything is almost like digitized and confusing and loud at times and very quiet at times. And so while they are in real locations like the subway or a doctor's office, because the way he perceives the world is so different than just a normal person, the play and the production team uh, do such a good time uh, job of uh, bringing you into what is, what it feels like that. Um, If you were to do that, as a film, you'd have to have a very good director to find a way to uh, make it less realistic. So the play can actually make it uh, make you feel something that you wouldn't feel in a very like it might be too sterile or it might be too real in a movie. Right. Um, so it's like, don't yeah, play against the realism. Interesting. OK, so how far after college did you decide to move to Los Angeles? Uh, it was probably about. I want to say four years, four years, yeah. okay, four years of me just like, and that was a period of time where I always talk about how I forget it um, because literally nothing was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were still doing the improv troupe, but to make money because we were uh, trying to legitimize it, we were actually doing more workshops and stuff like that mm-hmm. and uh, private functions. Uh, and for the most part, I was just living on my parents uh, in my parents' guest room <laughs> and, and trying not to worry about too much about bills and, and, uh, and just uh, yeah, doing odd jobs the whole time right. and at some point uh my friends uh stephanie and eric said we're gonna move to los angeles mm-hmm. uh you know in probably about a year so mm-hmm. if you if you can get yourself together in a year mm-hmm. you should all move out together that's awesome so you kind of got that offer to meet move with somebody exactly else, which is yeah. always an yeah. easier move it in is. the long run um you know eric carroll uh who did our, our shots and stuff for our marketing eric carroll photography check it out shout out to eric um stephanie's a fantastic actress who does with marilyn monroe uh just find her also she does some really good stuff um so when you what was your process to getting ready so they said you you have a year what was your process in that year to get ready actually one of the toughest things was um and i I will be honest we didn't have it until the week before was finding a place to live because uh when you don't live in los angeles you take it for granted now i'm sure you do and i do uh how hard it is to navigate here if you have no idea (laughs) like like i remember like hearing neighborhoods like west hollywood hollywood uh, silver lake echo park i don't i don't know (laughs) now 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 it seems like those are so obvious like where where they are but like in fact i remember one time we were on the highway and someone pointed out oh silver lake's over there and I remember that moment because every time I pass that area, I think of that. I'm like, oh, I had no idea where I am. <laughs> I had no idea where I was at the time. Um, and and it's funny because, like, uh, it's not really that complicated of a city in the layout. But when you're really trying to figure out neighborhoods, it's incredibly. What's, expensive, what's not expensive? What's not expensive? What's safe? What's not yeah. safe? Yeah. And actually, uh, one of my favorite stories uh, is uh, we were at a sushi place having tried to look for places everywhere and, and kind of coming up a little feeling a little short. Mm-hmm. We, and not short because we didn't find places, but because we were like, 
I don't know. Is that a place to live? I don't know. Is this going to be a good place for us to work on our careers? Is, you know, is there a better place to be actors essentially or in writers and whatnot? Right. Um, and we're at a sushi bar and uh, we were talking to a very drunk couple and we're telling them why we're here in town. And, and they were like, where are you looking at? <laughs> and we were like, well, we checked out Burbank today. And the woman was like, effing Burbank. <laughs> oh no, no, don't live there. Oh my God. If you live there, you will never do anything. <laughs> like she's like, move to West Hollywood, move to West Hollywood. It's the only place to live where you can do anything. She's, she was like so adamantly. And it was only because she was drunk, right. but also so wrong. Right. Oh, <laughs> and, very wrong. So wrong in so many ways. Because everybody knows North Hollywood is where North you Hollywood live. North Hollywood is where you live. <laughs> if you want to be, if you want to, if you're an artist who's struggling, <laughs> yeah. you'll live in NoHo. You'll live in NoHo. <laughs> but, but it's funny how people can, can almost misguide you because of their, mm-hmm. uh, the way they think of this town and like some people, they, they are totally West Hollywood all the way. And that's their stopping grounds. Obviously uh, I've become uh, Echo Park uh, all the way. Echo Park elitist. <laughs> An Echo Park elitist. Okay. So, you, so after, we were trying to find a place. Yeah. After yeah. some struggles, you guys came out here a few times to look for a place. And we I think on the last time, right? Yeah. It was, which was a week live. before it was a week before we were set to move. And, and you did it like not all of you came, right? No, like, that was just, that was just me and my dad, that trip. Cause yeah. uh, we wanted to keep it on the cheap and uh, he, he kind of, he was interested. So he was like, okay, I'll go with you. And, so, so you had to take like really good pictures and like exactly. really communicate to Eric exactly. and Stephanie. Like this is but, what we have and this is what it is. But we got so desperate. Uh, <laughs> on the last day of the trip and Eric just happened to find a place on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an echo park and, and uh, we went and it was, it really uh, not to lead into her whimsy, but it was the only place. It was like a uh, three building uh, with parking and, uh, and just had like lovely pine trees that, you know, you don't see a lot of pine trees until you get mm-hmm. certain parts of, Los Angeles had lovely pine trees and like hakarendas and like <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> and yeah yeah and and a the, huge mob of singing and yeah exactly and, and, then, and then we saw the we saw the room uh the the the, 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 movie, the room the room yeah. <laughs> no, no we saw the apartment uh and uh and I was like I think it's it and and I called Eric and I was like I think it's it I I mm-hmm. I've not seen anything better everything else has kind of been like a little shady or you know just places that look like they're gonna have you're you're definitely gonna have problems right. you know like water or, or something right um and i told him yeah i think this might be the one and he said uh it doesn't really matter we need a place so, <laughs> Do so it. put put a deposit down <laughs> yeah and then uh we literally the next week uh set set our path to move here and and luckily found somebody to help us come along too so so when you got here you got settled in you moved into your apartment you got unpacked you're all right. set what was your, for you, your first steps to getting started? Yeah, it was, uh, it was literally trying to jump straight into writing something. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like now looking back uh, from that period to buffering, uh, how many short stops I had, like how many times I was like, oh, okay, I think this is going to be something, this is going to be something. And then I would stop. Um, I think you read a, a Modern Family spec script I wrote. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, yeah. I, was like, I remember that, was, that. That was the big. That was the big victory of that day. I'm like, oh, I got a spec script written. I can I can send it out to like submissions and stuff like that. And it's so funny, like reading back on that script is like, oh my god, how did you? 
you know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know nothing, Mike Tobias. You know nothing, Mike Snow. <laughs> like, like, uh, John Rothenberger. <laughs> yeah. But, but funnily enough, did have like nothing. I'm not even in the least bit accusing them of stealing. Mm-hmm. But, but it was funny that they did end up doing stories on Modern Family later that were very similar to. I was just thinking yeah, it did yeah. seem very similar to your stories. So I, I was still very proud of the fact that I'd like was able to tap into the feeling of the show, which yeah, is absolutely. when you're writing a spec script, that's the job. Right. You definitely had things in there that was very reminiscent of the show that like you yeah. had the voices of the characters. Pretty well, that's well good. Down. That's good. Yeah, yeah. It's just story structure. There's a whole C thread that's just throw away. <laughs> and then the B thread, it's not even that good. Honestly, the, the, the best thing that was in that script was, uh, which is funny because they do this later. I wrote a thing about how Cameron and Mitchell are, renting out their house to a film crew in the hopes of Cameron says that he wants Lily to be an actress Mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the production that they've rented out uh, their apartment to, but it's really him, of course. Mm -hmm. And so of course the film crew is destroying the place and it's getting overwhelming for Mitchell. And I was like, and that, that thread I'm very proud of. And eventually they do, they do a really great, uh, which I thought was perfect for the show. They do one where Cameron's trying to get Lily in the commercial Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was a great, uh, was a great story. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the only real thing I did before before buffering was trying to write spec scripts, and, mm-hmm. and that was probably the one I was the most proud of. And like submit to I think some contests, right? That's kind of, you're, contests. you're writing for a contest, yeah. right? And at the same time, was of course this magic like star that dawned on me that was like, you should write poetry. <laughs> like, and I remember, I remember uh, our, our mutual friend. Mike Kenichi coming into town because he was thinking about building uh, this way. And uh, he was like, yeah, when we get, when I get into town, we're going to work on something. We need to do something as soon as we get here, which is the best attitude whenever you're moving and you know, people in the town is to say like, let's collaborate almost immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I remember he was saying that and I was like, I was like, Ooh, yeah, that'd be great. But Mike, I think I'm going to be a poet. So, <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm going to be writing these, uh, scripts for much longer, buddy. <laughs> like, uh, little got, did you know. yeah, a little poetry tick has bitten me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a poet now. I'm a poet now. <laughs> like, yeah. And, uh, naturally that's not what happened. I ended up working with him on buffering, but, mm-hmm. um, it, it was funny. Cause I, I, I honestly can't even say where that notion came from. Of like, you should write poetry. Because the only poem I'd written was like in eighth grade before, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but at some at some point I was like I what I, and I wrote terrible poems, mm-hmm. several several terrible poems, and I I would say the the most uh, instructive thing in this period was how much I was being rejected mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the rejection you know I was submitting poems places and I was submitting scripts places and uh, getting rejected. And, right. and and if you're if you're honest with yourself, you say that's because I, I I don't know something. You know, I may have talent and I may have a proclivity for this, but I don't know something. Right. And it's not just like not having connections. I think people blame connections mm-hmm. most of the time, but when you're good, you're good. Mm-hmm. And it, and at that point, it was really being honest with myself and saying, I'm not getting in because I'm not necessarily good. There's so much stuff I have to work on mm-hmm. until I can actually. And, and luckily, buffering gave me that opportunity. So you, you were writing scripts. Uh, let's talk a little bit about script writing and producing real sure. quick. What is your process for script writing? Like, where, where, how do you get, like, how do you take the idea and put it on paper? How do you do it? Normally, I have an idea for a scene. Mm-hmm. And 
there's something interesting that happens to the character that interests me. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's like just me dilly-dallying as I walk or as, you know, something happens. Uh, that <clears throat> I honestly, it's, it's, you know, I hate that question of like, uh, I'm sure you do too. Where do your ideas come from? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Space fairy uh, in the middle me, of the day. Let me delete this question. <laughs> <Exactly. before. laughs> yeah. uh, don't look at this. <laughs> yeah. But but sometimes it'll just hit you and you're like, oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that would be like uh, a guy named Jim lives on Third Street. He doesn't want to be a screenwriter, exactly, but yeah. he has amazing ideas. <laughs> yeah. Like there's this uh, there's a short film I'm still working on that like the idea literally came. I was walking on a hike by myself. And uh, uh, I was passing a, uh, another uh, hiker and he smiled at me. I smiled at him. And uh, my next thought in my head for whatever reason. You guys are married now. We're married right? now. Uh, <laughs> but my next thought was literally, what if he just died? <laughs> like, like, Man, I, was, that's I, was, a dark, I feel sorry for that guy. I, I yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because you have like this guy who's like really fit. He's coming mm-hmm. up the hill and he's very nice. And he's like smiling. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, he's having a good day. And, uh, and then it just like, the next thought was like, what if instead of me, it's a character who's having a terrible day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, the whole premise of the short, short film is literally this guy that dies. And this guy, this other guy was literally walking to jump off a cliff somewhere. <laughs> so he was actually about to go kill himself. Right. And this guy who's perfectly healthy and for some reason, life being so unfair, dies of a heart attack right, right, right. right there and and uh just because he's fatigued from the hike and mm-hmm. stuff like that and you know and essentially that's you have this one idea and you go that's insane and i, I and it's always better if that's your first thought mm-hmm. like that's that that would never work mm-hmm. and they go but it could how would it but it could if this was true yeah. and, and, and you know like uh i was actually talking to eric because we, we were talking about uh the, the script he's working on mm-hmm. and uh this advice appeared in my head and I was like, Oh, you should follow your own advice. <laughs> and I, I told him, I was like, all the story is, is you feel you, you figuring out some bit of knowledge or thing that's the character should know. Mm-hmm. And then from that point, you just work backwards, all the reasons why they wouldn't know that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's your story. Mm-hmm. You know, they would have known that except this happened. They would have seen that except this happened. They would have gotten to this place except this happened. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Like, I don't know how you approach your, your comedy writing, mm-hmm. but if you're, if you're making a joke, you never think of the setup first. Mm-hmm. You think of the punchline, right? You think of the punchline and you go like, okay, how do I hide that punchline? And make it seem like that's not where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. And then you, you hit it. I, I try to look actually like speaking of, you know, looking at comedy, I look at my comedies like dramas. How do I, but, but, and this over the top, like what's funny about this life. Right. And then you kind of take that and then you find the jokes as you write it. Right. And and you can easily, especially it sounds like if you're a funny person or a humorous person, <laughs> you can easily find the place to write the jokes. And then depending on the kind of comedy, how big are the jokes and yeah, how exactly. over the top are they yeah. just subtle? Yeah. Are they, you know, somebody yelling something off screen that's really like, oh, no, like, you know, like that's ridiculous. You know, so it's, it really I think you have to look at everything like a drama. And then then the the roads diverge based on what style you're. Going yeah, for basically the drama. way you the way you tell it. Is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? Yeah, exactly. Everything's drama. Is it a tragedy or is it a comedy drama? Yeah. You know, you have these ideas, you're writing 
and then maybe you stop and you can't think of what you want to do next or you get, you know, what's the infamous writer's block. Yeah. H- and, how do you handle writer's yeah, block? Which, which, uh, I love writer's block. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, it just means you don't know somebody. Right. It's like, uh, you know, I, I would say my process is this. I, I write down ideas, um, that I think might be in the play or in the movie. And, uh, at a certain point I get a confidence and I was like, Oh, I can write this. And that's uh, always misguided. <laughs> and, I, and I start writing, you start writing the first scene and, and uh, you know, you might, I, I, I have tried to break this habit, but sometimes I'll write the first scene, I'll write the second scene. <laughs> I won't write the third. I'll go back and I'll rewrite the first and I'll rewrite the second, mm-hmm. which is me just avoiding the fact that I don't know what the third scene is. Right. And uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard lots of writers recommend outlining and how much it, mm. it helps and honestly that's just not it's uh, as as much as i've tried to at times outline and and i, I can say like something like american dynasty mm-hmm. was born uh which is a short film uh mm-hmm. i did uh that was born of outlining and, and and that one actually is the exception because most of the time i uh write down my ideas mm-hmm. and i say i can write it and then i try to and then i hit a i hit a wall and i say okay, why did I hit that wall? What is in my way? What do I, what do I not know? Mm-hmm. Or is there something making me feel like this isn't the right direction for the character? Right. Is it because scene two is just not interesting mm-hmm. and scene two should be something else. And maybe I'll find a scene three and slowly and painfully with lots of whiskey, eventually hit an ending. Mm-hmm. And of course we know that's not even the, the end of writing the thing. Right. Cause then you have to actually go back and say, okay, now do all these beats work the way they should now that I know the ending? Is there a better way? Is that quicker? Is there things that I can eliminate? Um, which is my second favorite thing, when I can eliminate my own writing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have no problem killing my darlings because if it doesn't need to be in there, it doesn't matter how clever or smart I thought you know I was at the time, mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be in there because ultimately it will hurt me. I think one of the biggest things with writer block, writer's block um, that I've, I have found for me is patience yeah exactly and just, and just yeah. maybe taking some time and trying some different things you know definitely try to write yeah but i think eventually you'll crack through it and and a lot of times yeah. for me writer's block is you're you're trying to fix a situation exactly. and and so it's not it's not that you're you can't think of good ideas or you can't think of what's going on it's that the flow of the story has hit a point and your your brain and your creativeness is trying to figure out well what's the next point yeah and 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 how does that connect with what's happened and sometimes it takes a minute where it'll it's kind of like they say about finding like love yeah. it happens when <laughs> yeah. you're not even yeah you're not even trying like, yeah and you know I know I've had moments where I've been on like a bus and then all of a sudden I've been have had trouble with like maybe I, you know there's a a script that Michael uh, our producer and myself have been working on. And one of the biggest issues we had was our opening and it wasn't exciting and it wasn't interesting. And I kept trying to figure out like something that would really grab people right when we, when they opened the page, the first page. And I could not think, I tried so many different things and nothing sounded good. And so finally I just kind of stopped. And then one day on a bus, I was listening to music and just sitting there and literally just like a light bulb went on. I was like, wait a minute. What if we do this? So it's, it, you know, I think writer's block is just a moment in time where you just have to let your brain function and do what it does. And it'll eventually it'll chew out the proper. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how it works that way. I think, I think 
even out of sight of writing, uh, mm-hmm. I think the brain does naturally work like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember reading that like when Einstein really came up with relativity, like when the first big idea hit him, mm-hmm. he was like uh, playing Mozart because mm-hmm. that's the way he would think he'd get on his violin and play Mozart. And I think the story goes, and I don't think it's apocryphal, but I think he says he literally nearly fell out of his chair. <laughs> and, and it had been this idea that he'd been working on this whole, I mean, pretty much since he was like 16 of right. like, he would just imagine a light beam and, uh, and a clock. And, and, and it's such, it's so obvious now that we know relativity a little bit better, mm-hmm. obviously with like movies like interstellar and stuff like that. Right. But you think about that whole, that whole, his, 15 years of just thinking about this one thing mm-hmm. like isn't it interesting like what would happen if i rode on the light beam what would things look like to me like you know and eventually it just one day he's just playing the violin and it hits him and he really falls out of his chair and, yeah. and i mean i immediately get, opened the notepad on my phone and literally wrote the entire scene on my phone yeah because yeah, you're, you're then, trying to like, yeah. get it down and then i copied over. and pasted in sections yeah. to michael because he didn't have like or because yeah, yeah. he didn't have an iphone so i couldn't just share it to him so i had to like text pieces <laughs> to him and then I, when i text i had to reformat it because it didn't format properly yeah. in the text so i had to reformat it but i remember just pulling out and writing the whole at least the first oh, yeah. draft of the scene and being like this this is it like just vomiting yeah. this, this scene out and it was yeah. like this is this is how we open this is well this is it i always love uh i always love the story lynn manuel tell, talks about when writing hamilton he was working on um uh wait for it mm. and uh, he was like on the subway to a birthday party mm. and it hits him like death does not discriminate and that lyric mm-hmm. and all of a sudden from that lyric everything starts pouring mm. out and he's writing it down and writing it down and he gets to the birthday party knocks on the door and they answer it and he's like I gotta go. Yeah, I gotta go. I <laughs> can't birthday. say. Happy birthday. birthday. I've, I've gotta, gotta go, go write a song. <laughs> I gotta go write a song. Yeah. And he gets back and he writes a song. And and that's why it's like, you know, I think if you if you fear writer's block, it will get the best of you. But I mean, if you're a writer, you you have ideas all the time and, and maybe they're not related to the thing you're working on. Um, the one thing I will say is uh, one thing I did learn from buffering, which I do know is very important in the television writing industry. Mm-hmm is sometimes you don't have a good idea, but you have to know story structure well enough to have a script done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, there were times when we were doing buffering where we could have used maybe a month mm-hmm. or another to just to really like think, especially in comedy. And, and that's, that's the thing that I'm always impressed by comedies because comedies feel so natural and, 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 as if the comedians or the actors are just doing it in front of you mm-hmm. and like, it's nothing. Uh, but the writer, uh, even if there's somebody as supremely talented as like Mel Brooks still does a lot of work to get it to that point. And so like when we were doing buffering, there'd be times where we'd, we'd be running towards the actual start of a production schedule. And at some point you have to say, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> like, yeah. like this is going to be the scene and maybe the scene doesn't, flow as naturally into the next scene as it should but mm-hmm. but you actually have to make a your best compromise which right. also happens on the production side because then especially if you're low budget mm-hmm. you'll then say okay we wanted to do that but we're running out of money real quick mm-hmm. and maybe we have to do something like that but you know and so there's a lot of also rewriting on set and at, in, in none of that can you say well i've got writer's block right i don't know what's happening 
obviously if you're doing a movie about writers writing a movie <laughs> that's the conflict <laughs> like i can't think of a thing and we, the movie's starting next <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh but but in, in the real life you have to actually say okay uh it's gonna be very cliched but let's just do this because we have nothing else right and hopefully it's hopefully the audience doesn't notice that you had that <laughs> well thank you for my natural my natural yeah. transition here um so let's talk about buffering yeah. a little bit um so how did buffering come yeah. about uh so buffering came about just out of pure uh, this is a good example of of not necessarily working on an idea for a long time uh, literally one night uh matt zimmer chase edmondson and uh Steph Stewart, who my roommate at the time, uh, we were all getting some food at a local diner called Bright Spot, which is now very prominent. In, like if you watch, uh, uh, you're the worst. Mm-hmm. It's an actual location in the, in the oh, show. Right. Yeah, like like not a location that they call another diner. Right. They call it the Bright Spot because uh-huh. the, the show takes place at Echo Park. Echo Park. <laughs> Echo Park. <laughs> it's changed everything. Um, and we were just sitting there one night, and and uh, um. Steph and Matt had gone to uh, high school together. So they were reconnecting. Chase was Matt's roommate. And uh, we were all saying, like, hey, we, we're not working on anything. We should work on something. And, uh, like, how hard could it be to do a web series? What was the thought? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, just, you just write a script. You just get together one weekend and you do it. Yeah, yeah. it's easy. That's easy. And, and that's essentially what we did. So yeah. it is easy. <laughs> it is. Uh, although the first episode... Uh, production-wise, was so terrible um, <laughs> because we literally had no idea what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally, I, wo- I wrote a script in a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Only had to be seven pages because right. we were like, we'll just spit them out as we go along. Right. Um, and uh, we filmed one weekend uh, and uh, lost all of that footage. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so then we had to come back another weekend and, and film it again. Uh, and I, I, I want to say it's for the best because the first week of the footage was probably mm-hmm. terrible, we, but we knew nothing of sound. We knew nothing of lighting. Right. Um, in fact, my favorite thing in the first episode production of the crappy production uh, value is there's a scene that's taking place in my actual apartment uh, in which uh, Kurt's character, Ben, and his roommate, uh, played by Eric, Alex, mm-hmm. um, are talking and there's a hallway in the background that we put up a softbox light so that light is just emanating out of this hallway like we're Spielberg with <laughs> weird bright lights in places they shouldn't be. It was like, so every time I watch the pilot again, I'm like, why did we put a light in the hallway? Why do we think the hallway needed to look like it was illuminated? And, and, and yet half of the scene takes place in a kitchen, right. our kitchen, that we have no lights on. <laughs> there are no lights on in the same because we had no idea. Nobody right. was a director. Nobody was a uh, PA. Nobody was a producer. It was just us putting it together one weekend. We just uh, the only thing we spent money on was uh, buying a pizza mm-hmm. the first day uh, for lunch, and that's and 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 then we edited it together. Uh, I believe it was Matt or Chase who did the editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say Matt, mm-hmm. um, and then we put it out there. And uh, and we decided we wanted to raise money for the second episode. And it was still the same process. It was still like uh, the second episode. It was like, okay, well, and again, this is me not having confidence mm-hmm. and just saying like, well, I'll write kind of something sketchy for the second episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, we got Mike Kenichi on the project to be a director. Mm-hmm. We're like, we need a director. Mm-hmm. Somebody, because, and again, this actually, this is uh, going back to our earlier conversation. Uh, I was not going to step into that role. Right. 
And it's funny, like when you have nobody, how many times I, I'll take this as my own uh, bragging. There's so many times I said no to the right things because <laughs> there's a point where like we didn't we didn't know like who would play the lead. And I think somebody was like, well, Mike, maybe you should play the lead. And yeah. I was like, no. <laughs> and we, we found Kurt and, right. you know, who, who we met a few times. And well, real, real quick before um, we kind of continue going forward with that. Um, how did you guys meet Kurt and like how did how did him coming aboard kind of ramp up the production and maybe make it more than just a one-off oh, episode? Made, made it real pro. Right. Kurt, Kurt brings, <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because like uh, Kurt and I actually uh, grew up in the same city mm-hmm. um, and uh, we were both from Arlington and uh, Arlington has this weird renaissance that happened. Mm-hmm. There's so many people from Arlington at the same time. Uh, Todrick Hall, uh, Pentatonics, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So there's this weird like, uh, and, and, and Kurt would have gone to the same high school as I did, except he was homeschooled. Mm. Um, and we ended up actually going to the same creative arts school. Uh, so back in high school, when I was starting to get a little bit more into musicals, um, my parents signed me up for a creative arts school to do voice lessons and some dance lessons mm. at the same time. Um, and Kurt was very involved with that. So right. we were probably walking the hallways. He might have been. Uh, I, I even imagined in my head we were probably in the same room at some point. Right. Uh, just, you know, not really connecting at that time. Um, but we meet him out here through a mutual friend. Uh, and, uh, at the time Kurt was, uh, you know, uh, he'd just done Glee. He just started doing Glee. Um, mm-hmm. and it was going through kind of a period of not really having his next thing, which was funnily enough, the idea that germinated the story mm-hmm. about a guy who's on a hit TV show and then loses that and decides to make a web series right. uh, in his free time. <laughs> and so uh, we were like, very uh, meta. We were like, Kurt, do you want to play your life right now? <laughs> 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 no, we, we, we called him one day. We we're like, Hey, we, we, uh, we're, we're doing this web series and uh, just let you know, uh, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, but if you would be a part of it, we would, we would love you forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, uh, luckily said yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think he said he had a little hesitation, but at the same time, didn't want to say no mm-hmm. because he wanted to be in that. I think it's a very good spirit that both him and his wife, Kim embrace, which is you don't just say no to a project because you think it's the wrong. Yeah. When we recorded him, his big thing was saying yes. Like say, yes yeah, he's very, he's, he's very good about it. He's very good about it. And, and he probably should have said no. Because <laughs> 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 it, was, it was a, yeah, it was an awful process. But it's funny because like, I'd say the best thing about the project was at no point did anybody say, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. This is perfect. Look at us go. Mm-hmm. And I think even to the end, when, which, you know, the, the final episode, we, uh, had a budget of you know uh thirteen thousand dollars so we were we had some quiche to actually play around with and and create a 45 minute episode that was more professionally done it was filmed on the red camera Mm -hmm. and even then you look back at it or at least i do and i go still could have done if there's going to be an episode seven Mm -hmm. there's things i would have wanted to change i would encourage everybody to do their own projects and to have that same spirit because uh it it does allow you to test your limits and to i you know i've been uh eric and i have been talking a lot uh this year about what's our what's our next big goal Mm -hmm. and uh i stole this thing from thomas keller the chef uh he 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 talks a lot about refinement Mm -hmm. you know is it just good enough to make mashed potatoes or can you make a potato puree that's elegant 
and elevates it to another level. Right. Um, Gordon Ramsay is big about that too. He uses the word elevate a lot. So mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of lessons from chefs because they, well, the, sh- I, I think a chef is the closest profession to filming. Yeah. They, t- they tell the story through yeah. their food. They tell the story through their food and it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Like there's no kitchen in America even at a certain level, that's easy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always going to be gritty and, and you're going to have to really come together as a team and everybody has a role. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it's, so I love, I love hearing their philosophies on things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my favorite thing about what Thomas Keller was saying was refinement. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta say, this isn't good enough. We're going right. to do even better next time. I'm going to refine the skill. Right. I'm going to continue to like learn about this over here, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably the only reason I read so much because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm always, it's almost like a fear of like I'm missing out on something. You always want to get better at stuff and exactly. which is never, you always need to keep learning. Yeah. Like Absolutely. we've been, we've been talking ourselves about how, uh, you know, reading our, our different books like Truby, mm-hmm. Truby's book. Um, I, I, you know, we're talking about the end of the woods book, mm-hmm. which it's like, it's just always going to the next thing to say, like, can I learn a little bit, something different? I have your copy of story yeah. right oh, behind yeah, yeah. you there. Yeah, yeah. That's sitting there waiting oh, for you to finish. Oh my God, it's It's such a big book. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, huge. And it's 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 intimidating. I, like, I can't even believe I've read it, read it But twice. it looks good. Like, on, it looks really good it on looks a really show. It looks really good on a show. It looks really good on a show. Yeah. And even then, like, uh, you know, I, I'd say not everything in that book is, is necessary. Right. It's a lot of him. Uh, he's a very smart person. Right. He's very obviously... Uh, academic so he he uh robert mckee knows movies inside and out right. and knows what makes them great but it doesn't necessarily help you in terms of process mm-hmm. uh, i always love the people who admit the difficulties right you know that say oh i, I hate doing this or mm-hmm. i love i love hearing what a writer the reality of it yeah just says like oh i was so near broke and right. and yet somehow found a way to like uh like my favorite my favorite playwright is uh, uh, Samuel Beckett. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had no idea what he was doing with his life until he was 44, mm-hmm. I, think, I think, around that area, when he finally wrote Waiting for Deneau. Right. And was literally on the brink of maybe killing himself. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> as most storytellers. Yeah, as most Because he was so broke and just, and his, his case was worse because he was uh, James Joyce's protege. Mm-hmm. And so, so much was expected of him. Right. And he had yet to produce anything, anything of good. Yeah. yeah. He's like, he wrote two novels and nobody cared. Right. Um, and uh, really, really found, <laughs> I love that he found his, his voice in, he's like, you know what I should write about? I should write about how depressed I am right now yeah. <laughs> and how bleak I feel the world is. It's really about nothing. <laughs> it eventually became about nothing. Um, so, so you talk about refinement and like uh, sharpening the edges and, yeah. and no one giving up on like going, we're, we're at, we're there. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, even, even if I uh, was sharing buffering with somebody mm-hmm. and maybe they didn't find it entertaining, the thing I would like love to point out to them is like, look at, look at our six episodes. And we came from literally, Crappy videographer camera, mm-hmm. bad sound, uh, no color correction, right. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. To you know, full scale production with crew and right. uh, and uh, bringing in some actual like you know outside talent, right. uh, which was again uh, the one thing I emphasize is that you refine because you want everybody involved with it to feel like they are in a not only safe environment mm-hmm. that they can do their work right but you want them all to be proud of the thing you do absolutely so you if you're going to be a producer or mm-hmm. a director or even a writer uh it, your number one job is to ensure that there is a certain quality mm-hmm. 
and and it's great for your own personal individual achievements mm-hmm. but it's also because this this ship's only going to sail if you get everybody involved and get excited about and get it. excited about it so yeah. you want things to be good and you want things right. to be uh tip-top shape right so you said you were the executive producer on yeah it. did you ever see yourself being a producer nope. on anything <laughs> Nope. <laughs> um, what, what, what was that like for you? We, what, were, what were the best parts and what were the worst parts about and, it? And it was funny because like literally uh, we were we were like, well, so should somebody be EP or somebody should, should somebody be the head producer? And I was like, well, I guess traditionally the writer in television is the EP. The creator of it. Yeah. But I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I said it and they're like, OK, yeah, we're cool with that. I have like, some books you can we're, read. We're, we're fine. Yeah, I, I have yeah. a podcast you should listen to. And, and everybody agreed to it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so now I have to do things. And, <laughs> and then you went, then you read a book that shows you what you had to do and you cried for an hour. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What your responsibilities were. And essentially it's, uh, I don't think there really is a, I mean, obviously when you get to um, television writing level, there are certain things that are very similar, but uh, it is interesting that a lot of EPs do different things. Right. Uh, some are very concerned about with story world and they have uh producers on their team that they let do all the business mm-hmm. and stuff like that other producers uh are very involved with the business things mm-hmm. and they uh and then some are just very great at balancing both right i mean in, in in the general sense of it though the executive producer usually the creator of the show yeah um, unless they hire somebody else to do it because the person exactly. that pitched it is not He's experienced not experienced enough yeah um is the ceo exactly of the show yeah. they make the choices of this costume or this fabric or this, this and this yeah. and this to keep everything like their, their main mission is to stay on budget and produce a quality product at the same time. In, in a case, it's, it's almost like, uh, I guess just to use analogies to other professions, it's a, you kind of become more like a fashion mm-hmm. uh, designer. Mm-hmm. It's like the designer should only really be concerned about, you know, the garments, the, the mood of the collection, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But, has to also be really involved with marketplace and, you know, presenting the collection. And there's a lot of business decisions a fashion designer actually has to make. You, there's a lot of meetings. Yeah. Cause I think, I think we both know, uh, Sharin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah Sharin. Sharin, Sharin every, time I, every time I see, I see Sharin stuff, I'm like, you know, she is, she's a powerhouse. She's so talented. She's so talented, but not just because she's a talented designer, but mm. you can see like a lot of the business. Oh no. She's just, she's just so good at that. She's excellent. Like just yeah. so good. I actually reached out to her recently. I'm like, nice. I sent her a message like, Hey, if you're ever in Los Angeles yeah. and you have a few you should, hours, yeah. let's record. Cause I'd uh-huh. love to talk to you. Yeah. Cause she's um, got a great personality on she was, top of She's on a season of uh, Project Runway. Yeah, she was on Project Runway. She got unfairly kicked off. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah what, I remember that. Oh, I was so mad when she got kicked off. Anyway. But but yeah, so like the <laughs> so the EP essentially, you, you learn very quickly, uh, has to protect the production from so many different forces, mm-hmm. uh, including yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and it's a lot of paperwork too. Yeah. Uh, and essentially it's like, Finding the best way to film your vision, uh, finding the best people to film your vision, and at the same time, creating a sort of efficiency because you, you don't have too much money to work with. I think uh, episode three, we only had, uh, I want to say, $3,000. Right. So that was our first time we had a, a chunk of money to do something with. Right. Um, and uh, even then, it was like, okay, how do I how do I source everything I can't pay for? Mm-hmm. And uh and you're, you're having to balance that responsibility with uh, the actual writing and creative stuff. But also, I'd say, at least in what I did, was anytime there was a role in which – because 
when you're the writer mm-hmm. and the EP in both roles, you're useless on set. Right. Unless somebody's like really like, oh, hey, this line's not working mm-hmm. or I, we need to add a little bit of dialogue here, you know, which uh, Mike and I can usually discuss it and say, okay, we'll do this and do this. Right. <clears throat> but for the most part, I literally have nothing to do on set. Right. I'm in the way. Uh, and <laughs> so sometimes I would just be like standing on set being like, I guess I could try to look important. You know, <laughs> you know like cross my arms and like, you know. <laughs> like, the power stance. Power stance. But, but honestly, most of the time there's something else that had to be like fixed uh, right. before the next day of shooting or, or, or whatnot. Oh, you, you, a lot of times you're the go-to between departments. Your you know, yeah. sound makes your sound knows exactly. what's going on. Everybody knows where they're moving to. Exactly. Knows the actors know, make sure that the actors are aware of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, extras are aware of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the space is still exactly. on track. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're I think, so, you know, yeah, uh, all that stuff. It, to anybody who thinks that maybe they're going to be an EP one day. Don't. Uh, don't. <laughs> just, just know it's, it's a lot like writing. You're going to be out of the action. Yeah. Uh, be able to multitask. Also. Gonna, yeah, exactly. You, uh, usually, especially towards the end, what we would do is I would find a place to set up office. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it was lucky because we we're, the filming location was literally our apartment. So I just be in my actual office <laughs> in your room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, with the, the whiskey bottle and the gun. Exactly. With the whiskey <laughs> bottle and the gun. Hey, the gun comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, you're you're literally preparing paperwork for the next day, or you're uh, preparing, calling people, saying you know maybe there's an actor mm-hmm. who's only going to be the next day. Yeah. You're communicating, um, and you're also the bearer of bad news because yeah. when production goes wrong, you're the person telling everybody <laughs> that it's yeah. gone. Like a uh, like a horrible horrible thing happened on the the finale where we went into a location thinking we were only going to need a half day. And we're having we had actors show up at the next location. Uh, so the transpo would be very simple. Mm-hmm. You go to the next location, the actors are already there, and then right. make them. Well, the first part of the day went incredibly long. Mm-hmm. It actually went till I think the whole uh, time we were allowed to film, which is usually about twelve hours. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you're paying all the time, right? Um, and uh, at a certain point, uh, we had a frank conversation of, "We're not going to get to that other location." So, guess who gets to make the phone call? To all the different actors. Mike Tobias. Yeah. Hey, uh, sorry. Today's taking longer and uh, we're not going to get there. Thank you for coming to the location. Uh, let's start rescheduling now. Mm-hmm. When can you come in next week? And when you're low budget, mm-hmm. you're you're doing this by the grace of people's availability. Yeah, and their time. You know, you you can't be like, all right, you're going to be there tomorrow. You right, know? 7 o'clock. Yeah, 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and even from what I've heard, sometimes on a on a regular set, these conversations between the producers and the talent and the production crew can get a little testy mm-hmm. because even though they are being paid, and in mm-hmm. some cases people are being paid uh, extraordinary amounts of money, uh, it, it is it is annoying. It is annoying mm-hmm. when when production doesn't have something uh, set. Yeah. You, you have wasted people's time. Yeah. And, and because uh, they could have worked on something else. They could have worked day. on something else. Yeah. And, you know, they could have made money somewhere else. Nobody, and, nobody likes waiting too. Like, yeah. And, 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 and filmmaking is a lot of waiting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So you're trying to, you're trying to help ease that for people right. uh, as much as you can until it's finally their scene or until you're ready to jump into the next thing. Right. Uh, so what would you say were like your favorite parts of being a producer? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, when you, when you get it done, it's mm-hmm. the most exciting feeling on the planet because, uh, you know, going back to theater, theater is great because after you finish production, you have this beautiful bond between mm-hmm. everybody who worked on the play, mm-hmm. uh, from the actors to the crew, uh, 
to the to the uh, above the line. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a sense of like we did something. A family, you're a yeah. family that succeeded in putting <laughs> yeah, something exactly. Uh, with you filmmaking, got it. with filmmaking, it's like like a hundred times bigger. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for everybody though, right? But I would say on the production side, you know, when you're when you hit that bar uh, after after the last shot's been filmed, mm-hmm. uh, it's the most elating. Thing. And I think it's partly an illusion because you're finally no longer stressed mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're like, tomorrow I sleep right. <laughs> I get to sleep. and nobody worry, and I have nothing to worry about. <laughs> well, like I have no, you know, uh, no paperwork to get no in paperwork and... to get into, no waking up to like somebody hasn't shown up to set, <laughs> no, you know, like nobody, uh, you know, cause you run into like, you know, when you're on a team of like, you know, I think the, there was a day in the finale where. We literally had, I think, 70 people involved. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the most stressful day. And, of course, the day something went wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so the day after you film, that feeling is like, we did it. Oh, my God. We got through We got through our production schedule. Right. Like, we powered through every day. It's all there. Uh, it's a little bit also, uh, I, I will say, you don't get everything during your production. There's going to be pickup shots. But you ignore that in your head. You're right. like, Okay, we may have to come back two more days, but right. well, we're done. The, the bulk of it, it. We did is it. Done. Yeah. You it, succeeded in a goal. I mean, that, exactly. that's pretty much it is. You set a goal to get this done, exactly. this done, this done, this done. You did yeah. it. And, and it, 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 there's just uh, there's a certain sense of adventure in filmmaking that I don't think any other art form has. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, especially if you're low budget, sometimes you're breaking the rules and sometimes you're seeing if you can get away with things because you have to. Right. Uh, you know, there's a a day we stole shots at a parking garage mm-hmm. and the whole specter of being shut down, but we, were, we weren't able to afford a parking garage. Right. <laughs> so we were, we went to a, a little place in Chinatown and we hoped because there was only one attendant and that we were on the third level, mm-hmm. we would not get shut down. Uh, it's a risk. All right. And, and, uh, but, but filmmaking is for people who love a little bit of risk. Yeah. And you do have to have a sense of like, I got away with something. Right, get that adrenaline flow. Exactly, you kind of get an adrenaline flow, mm-hmm. and you know, like, it, it helps balance out the stress because right. you're you're so worried about being shut down because that's so critically damaging. Right, you. but uh, yeah, it's just uh, there is a certain uh, adrenaline rush that still goes towards the end of it that you feel like, wow, this was like we did it. Yeah, yeah, we pulled this off. Uh, what what are you, you kind of talked about? You're the bearer of bad news. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you kind of wear a ton of hats. Um, is there are there other like if you had to, if somebody's thinking about being an EP, yeah, um, or you know running a show or a web series, what what's like one big advice you tell them that you learned through that process that you think would help them from the beginning that maybe you didn't know or yeah. you weren't prepared for? Is there one piece of like really strong advice you could give them? Make sure that everything is for the vision of what you're trying to write. Mm-hmm. That's never never lose sight of the fact that you are a writer. Mm-hmm. There's so many hats, but at the end of the day, uh, you're a writer mm-hmm. and, and you have to let that influence every decision you make, um, as a producer from business to, you know, hiring to just even just the money part of it, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, people aren't showing up for how good the production value is. People may be showing up for a certain actor you have in your project, but the thing they're leaving with is your story. Right. And the story is the thing that's going to guide you through all those decisions mm-hmm. is what is good for the story. 
And there's going to be some sacrifices that will hurt the story at times that you have to make, but you do your best to deliver whatever that thing was in your head that mm. made that story so important to you. Right. That's fantastic. Um, uh, I, I want to, in the future, I know me and Michael have talked about, we've talked about with you of getting kind of the a good core yeah. crew of the people, Mike Kenichi, Eric Carroll, right. Stephanie Stewart, right. uh, uh, Chase and, and yeah. Matt and getting you guys all in a room and really talking about buffering, like really yeah. focusing on that. So I kind of want to hold some other questions sure. for yeah, that. Yeah, because I think, you know, about the Kickstarter and marketing yeah. and more of the behind the scenes stuff for that, where we can get a lot of their opinions. For sure. Um, so <laughs> you can all blame me. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, you know, you wrote poetry when you were younger and you kind of got back into it. Uh, you were doing poetry here. Um, you wrote, you, you put together a collection of poems called a place for where runaway tide. Absolutely. Um, Talk about, I guess, that experience of writing those poems and then how, you know, when was the decision to, to put them together and then the title and just kind of take us through that process. Yeah, and coming from the script writing process, um, I don't really know, I, you know, there's, you can have a whole other section on poetry <laughs> right. of, of like people's process. But I mean, I'm still, I'm still very uh stuck I mean, to narrative i mean you're already scheduled for about three, <laughs> three other like, round yeah. table conversations yeah. with several different topics <laughs> exactly. so don't worry about it we'll get there <laughs> all right so so essentially um i'm still very beholden to narrative mm -hmm. so um i think it's i think it's important in a poem and i think it's important in a collection i feel mm -hmm. like uh if there isn't a shape to the collection you're trying to do uh if it's just collected poems mm -hmm. it seems so I don't know. It seems so, uh, you know, shipshod in mm -hmm. a way. Like I wrote a bunch of poems and then I found an order for them. Right. <laughs> like, like for me, that just doesn't jive. So, uh, with the collection, I, I set about making a, a, an effort to find this through line mm -hmm. of like the poems are all about this one thing. Right. Poems are all about this, uh, almost like characters, mm -hmm. like, you know, and, uh, Essentially, what happens is, uh, you know, uh, the first idea was for this collection, what if uh, it was about two people who had run away, mm -hmm. run away, You're, they're running from something, and uh, the only thing they really have is each other. Mm -hmm. And then from there, played on these essence of a love story, almost, right, you know, and uh it's not a very strict narrative. There's not like characters, things happening in characters. But for me to create the collection and to give it shape, I needed this idea of like, here's where I'm starting. Mm -hmm. Here's the middle. Here's a climax. And here's the end. So you kind of needed a theme. And you Just needed something, a, yeah. something to, gener to generate, hold on to. generate that push. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd say, look, if I have a tendency, it's uh, in, the, in my poetry, it's I try to like take something like very, uh, stagnant or stale and uh in a way actually make it like metaphysical or sensual mm -hmm. like just taking something that's like maybe the most boring thing you can think of and mm -hmm. then like find a way of either making it so that it is a little bit more sensual there's a little bit more life to right. it or even a little bit make it scary right <laughs> like, like there's there's some poems in the collection where that's that's just the essence of like there's a there's a poem I wrote in there that's uh, just a man cleaning the kitchen mm -hmm. while I love Lucy plays on in the background mm -hmm. and 
the poem becomes a meditation of how uh, the, his love is not there. Mm-hmm. She's, she's passed on. Mm-hmm. So it's just the emptiness. And it's finding all these things that make that empty feeling of right. him just staying there. Mm-hmm. And, but if you, were to, if you were to take a photo of that or film that as a scene, you may not get the same. It could be really boring. It could be really boring. Yeah, <laughs> just like here's a guy cleaning his kitchen and right. thinking about something while I Love Lucy plays on the television. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was the process for you to put it together? Like, I know you had an editor friend, a friend yeah. of yours that was helping you edit. Who you we also send, went to college. <laughs> yeah, you, you would send her. Yeah, Krista. Yeah, Krista, you would send her uh, uh, the poems. She would give you notes. Yeah. Um, and then you together you kind of collaborated. Exactly. To put this together. So. Yeah, seeing a theme, you seem to really enjoy collaboration. You really seem I don't think to, you can do it without uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. working with other people, which is yeah. great. I think that's important. Yeah. In any kind of uh, uh, narrative or exactly entertainment or even book, you know, narrative book kind of uh, world. Um, how long did it take you to put together? How long did it take you to kind of get the book made and write the poems? I mean, I would probably say like two and a half years. Yeah. Because it was one of those start and stop kind of things where. Um, I'd written a collection uh, the first year I moved out here, mm-hmm. uh, which I have somewhere, and it's just called Lake Town. Mm-hmm. And it was after visiting Big Bear Lake that I felt inspired. Like, I was like, I could, I could, and this finding my theme, I was like, I could, I could write some poems about this place. Like, and then eventually upturn it, find right. something interesting about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was good. It was okay. There's mm-hmm. some there's some good poems in there. <laughs> so so the the collection is called where uh, a place for where a place where runaways hide. Yeah, and right? it started it started with the poem runaways. Runaways, um, and uh, the poem is very simple, just about two people trying to get away, mm-hmm. um, only to find themselves uh, already stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's this it's this notion of like almost like the love is this thing that like we think we can uh, go to mm-hmm. like, you know, if only I, if only I was in love, if only I could get to, if only I was with this person or, you know, there's this idea that it's this great thing on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as anybody, obviously you're married, mm-hmm. anybody who's been in a relationship of any worth understands that it is incredibly difficult. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's very challenging. It's worth it. It's worth it. But it, it, it is, it, it, there is struggle and, and and joy at the same time. Exactly. And so in the simple shape of the collection, it's you get it at first mm-hmm. and you get the love. And what are the problems of that? And then you lose the love. Mm-hmm. What are the problems of that? And then and I, I've noticed in poetry, this is actually kind of a, a theme I found mm-hmm. with myself is uh, it's first about something then it's about something else. And then it's about yourself. Right. And, and it follows that very natural progression every time right well, i think i mean that's i think how you read a poem or exactly. a poem, right you, yeah. you see the 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 surface yeah and then you read deeper and you see what the uh probably author intended exactly and then you see how it affects you exactly <laughs> you know um like well, okay oh, i was gonna say I, I had a friend who when she read the collection uh she was like she's like i love it uh i just have so many questions and and i was like oh about like the themes or the poetry or just like, well, about your personal life (laughs) about some of these stories. And I was like, are you okay? I was like, Oh, well, okay. So I was like, well, they're not all about me. (laughs) Like they're Michael, but but, Michael, come on. Are you the hide or (laughs) are you the runaway? (laughs) And, and, uh, and I was like, 
well, sometimes I get inspired by, mm-hmm. by somebody else's situation mm-hmm. and it becomes an essence of a part of the collection. Mm-hmm. But what's so funny is I always end up finding out something about myself. Right. Absolutely. And actually writing that out. Well, I, you know, I find it I find it funny that it's called a, a place where waterways hide because it's very symbolic of like Los Angeles. Oh yeah, where Los oh, Angeles yeah. is a place where people run away to. Exactly. Uh, the that idea of chasing a dream and running yeah. towards that, and 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 wanting or the other side wanting to get away from um, wherever yeah. you're at the small town the small that town. nothing's happening exactly. or you know Which, stuff like that. You're running away to a place where to hide. Which in the uh, in that first poem, Runaways, that's that's what it's all about. It's all about describing like chain link fences mm-hmm. and like let's get away from these empty homes and and stuff like that. And and for me, like that was very reminiscent of uh, um, where my parents grew up, mm-hmm. which is in uh, Robstown, mm-hmm. which is a little small, small dinky town south of uh, Corpus Christi. Never even heard of it. Yeah, if you've if you if you've even heard of Corpus Christi, <laughs> like, like, and if you have, don't go there. And then it's, it's in the not, outskirts of trust Corpus me, Christi. Don't go to Corpus yeah. Christi. And uh, you know, not all not all our hometowns are so dramatic as like empty houses and dusty right. and stuff like that. Um, but there is a sense of like you're trying to get away from something, and you uh, ultimately, I guess the the poems are about in a way you kind of start getting away from yourself. I mean, I, I feel like I, now thinking about it even more with that title is so interesting because especially coming from like an entertainment background where actors hiding into other people and, and the other people, they want you know, to yeah. And just yeah. so many different ideas you can go with that exactly. is, is, is fantastic. And such, not that I did. Not that you thought. I'm, 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 I'm upping the ante yeah, on, you're on your the title. Ante. Yeah. Um, what uh, I know you're working on a new collection right now. Yeah. Uh, that is a full narrative. That is yeah. completely one story told. Yeah. Uh, it's one poem pretty one much, poem. right? One very um, long poem. 4,000 words? So far. So, so far. far. All right. yeah. do, you know, do you have like a goal I, of wordage that you want to have? I have a, so this is actually a good example because I actually have an outline for this one. Okay, great. Yeah, because I know with this one, because it's, it is one long poem, mm-hmm. um, I can't just do it in chunks. I can't just follow you know, this poem might be in there, this poem, which is how I started it. Right. But then at a certain point, I just got to, I got to a realization that like the poem that I want to write has to actually have more of a flow. Once you start, it's not stopping. Mm -hmm. And when it stops, it stops. And so I had to know those, those road marks along the way of like, um, one of the first things I did for the collection, uh, it's titled who owns this body. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a beautiful point, by the way. Oh, thank you. It's very good. Uh, thank you. Um, and one one thing of it is that uh, it's not only using the body as a metaphor, but it's also pushing the idea of how many metaphors can fit into a body. Mm. So it's it's working in almost both ways. So a lot of planning for the poem was based on one how much poetry has been written about bodies and how many metaphors, mm-hmm. what kind of metaphor. There's actually a book out there that's not a poetry book, uh, but it's all about metaphor and it uses the body. Right. And it talks about how much the body is a metaphor for mm-hmm. things or how much, how many, how many metaphors we use that are related to the body. Right. Like, you know, you're the head of state, mm-hmm. you know, this is, <laughs> we're only at the foothill. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we, we tend to work both ways where the body can be a metaphor for, or, you know, like the country can be a body. Right. Um, 
that that I that I wanted to like show all my limits. So mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of time just writing not poetry, but listing out all the ideas that have been done by right. this and listing out all the areas I could talk about. You know, all the things it's almost like I was laying out all the ingredients and saying right. like, well, there's there's what happens once the once the body's dead. Mm-hmm. Or uh and, and a one one big uh realization and I can say that the last part follows this notion of um the self-immolating uh monk which i which i found so which everybody does when they uh see the uh the images of a monk burning himself right because they anybody who was there will tell you that like it was so profound and poignant because the monk himself showed no signs of the fact that he was on fire mm-hmm. it was pure tranquility and peace and yet his body was literally burning in front of them yeah, and, and deteriorating. And so that idea said, that's the end point. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know mm-hmm. if that even really matters to the character. Not like the, not the, not that the narrator of the, of the poem is going to do that to himself, mm-hmm. but I was like, that's the feeling of the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's like, how do you get, like I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. you find the thing you want to work to. Right. And then you say like, how do I not get there? I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> How do you're, I? you're telling a story. So I feel like you would have to outline exactly yeah. the ups and downs. Cause I mean, it feel you know, you're going to tell that climax and that, you know, yeah. that, the struggle and the conflict, exactly. but through this kind of different medium and a different, yeah. different wordage and different use of words. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking, do you have like an ETA on when you want to kind of get that out? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I said, I try to be done early 2018 Mm -hmm. um it's kind of looking that way but you know uh sometimes you have to take the projects where the inspiration is right so sometimes i mean it's one of those things where like sometimes something gets put on the back burner and you don't intend it to be there but Mm uh like even the short film i was talking about earlier right i really honestly haven't thought about it for maybe six months (laughs) 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 like like literally not even like uh oh maybe i should get back on nothing i literally had nothing until literally about a couple days ago right. i was like oh i had an idea and then i, I and then i went back to writing on it mm-hmm. uh, while everything else that i was currently working on goes to the back burner and, and, and suddenly and it's very it can be frustrating if anybody's depending on you for right. <laughs> these projects or, or or hoping you do it soon right. but uh yeah but i said with the with the two things i really really wanted to hammer out this year mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning were finally finishing my play mm-hmm. and finally finishing this collection nice well best of luck with both thank you um we can i mean i, I think there's so much more we could talk to you about uh you, you're just literally a wealth of knowledge oh, thank uh, you. based on i mean you read so many books it's intimidating oh. and <laughs> and you're so willing just to talk and explore and discuss anything and and, that, and that's one of the things i love about you oh, thank um you. thank you so much for coming on here um, any last pieces of advice you would give to any creators out there, writers or producers in general, just kind of something that you feel is important to know or think about uh, personally? You know, uh, something I have been thinking a lot about recently in terms of like the refinement mm-hmm. and stuff like that uh, is to forget or to not forget that one being an artist is truly like the only way to live your life. Mm-hmm. Uh to observe, to really be present. Those are the joys. Um, But two, uh, to not forget that 
since you are doing this for somebody else to mm. entertain them, to enlighten them, whatever mm. you, whatever you feel your goal is, uh, planning and organization are such a big part mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, honestly, I, I haven't thought too much about it till recently. And I think the more I embrace organization and I embrace finding my processes to get something done, mm-hmm. the, the better artist it makes me. Yeah. So there's, there's the lifestyle as an artist, which is you go from one thing to the other, enjoying what you can, chasing what you find. And the other idea, which is you get down to actually, and I, and I think this is actually embodies the whole idea of an EP mm-hmm. is there's the one half of you that says that I'm the child at play. Anything can happen. I can do this. I can, you know, this, mm-hmm. then the other side is the adult says, okay, what can we do? <laughs> and, and as an artist, I'd say continually learning how to balance those two sides, no matter what you do, filmmaking, artistry, or dance, it, it all, it all comes back to, can you be both of those people? Right. That's, that's great advice. I, I think it's very important to structure and organize, not to a point where you're restricting Strict, yourself. Yeah, exactly. But definitely have a plan and an exactly. idea. And make, make um, you know, something I think we've talked about several times, make realistic goals. Oh, and it doesn't have to be <laughs> yeah. like, you can't finish this. Just, you know, not, I'm going to have the first draft finished next week. Exactly. Like, have like, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, you know, give yourself two weeks. Just to give, not, yeah. don't give yourself too much time where you become lazy. Yeah. But, Think realistically, outlining and planning and everything where you're going to be. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to get this produced in a year. Like you know what's which is yeah. totally doable. Yeah, it's totally doable. So like, give yourself those goals and just stick with them. Yeah, I mean that's actually such a funny thing to imagine. Like you you, you kind of forget this. If literally both of us were to say we're going to produce a film in a year, mm-hmm. that's totally possible. Yeah, it's, it's we both could literally it, do it. Which is insane in the world we live in. It's that that's in world, possible. That that's possible. Now, yeah, and not for thirty thousand dollars exactly, like or thirty exactly. million dollars, like yeah. you know would have been before. But thank you so much again, Mike, Absolutely. for coming on and chatting. It's uh, been a pleasure. I think you're you're a huge inspiration to me, and I'm sure you're oh, gonna be an inspiration to a lot of other people. Me. Oh, thank you, buddy. Um, now uh, we're Runaways Hide, a place for Runaways Hide yep. is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, and Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can find Buffering on YouTube. Just search Buffering the Series. Yep. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, I have a standard website, mm-hmm. ktbs.com, mm-hmm. which you can find me there. Um, I'm also on uh, Instagram at instagram.com slash ktbs. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, I also have my poetry account there, which mm-hmm. is at Mike Tobias Poetry. There you go. And uh, you also are a website I am. Uh, creator <laughs> and developer. <laughs> and so if you need a website... Mike did ours. He's a, he's really good at it. He's works with you really well. So definitely reach out to him. Contact at mktbs.com. Uh, right. Is yeah. We, 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 and we literally could have another conversation, which is all about like, how do you make money while you're, yeah, <laughs> you're oh, yeah. well, that's, that's part of what we talk about, <laughs> exactly. but it's like, there's so much to talk with you about. Yeah. That it's like, oh man, we got to figure something else out. Cause web development has been that for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you need a website, please contact Mike as well. Uh, he works with anybody anywhere. So thank you for the plug. No problem. Anytime. <laughs> so thank you so much again. This has been a fantastic conversation. I know you're going to hang out for act two. Uh, Michael's going to jump on and join us. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, stick with us till the next one. Uh, we love you and back to you guys in the studio. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike Tobias. Mike has so much wisdom to offer and so much knowledge on a lot of different topics. It's great to be able to kind of put that down in a recording and share that with you guys. 
some of the stuff we talked about, kind of, I just want to point out that I really, really enjoyed talking to Mike about was one about books. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about like the books that I loved as a kid for a long time. And so talking to him and really talking about, you know, the boxcar children and the books that really grew my love of reading was really interesting to kind of re rehash and rethink about and how I used to really go to the library all the time when I was a kid. And I really enjoyed especially like mystery books. I've always been a big mystery fan. So that was that was a lot of fun just kind of talk about that and what books do to you and how those can really be a seed for imagination. And books will be a topic that is mentioned a little bit more in a future episode as more of a main topic. It was really cool talking to him about that and, and just talking about like working as a producer and what that means to him and why he doesn't feel like directing is best for him, which, you know, is a really good thing to look at because it's good to know what your limits are. It's good to know if you're good at producing, you may not be good at directing, though. Even though there are some similarities, there are differences and vice versa. If you're good at directing, you may not be good at the producer role. And so kind of talking to him about that and what he went through during buffering and and how he worked on it and what he did with it was really interesting to kind of just feel out that idea of knowing what your boundaries are as a creative, as an administrator, as a as a worker in a way where your talents start and where they end. And, you know, he said he feels like he could never really be a director. And I, I think I think he could, but he feels he knows in himself where his limits are. And that's really important. The, the last thing that was really, for me, I love talking to him was about his move to L.A. Because I remember them going through all of that. I remember them going through that moving process. And once they did move here, you know, like I said in the show, I believe, you know, I talked to Mike quite a bit, at least once a week on the phone after they moved here. And he was really my connection to L.A. So it really helped me become more comfortable moving here because of talking to him of all the things they were doing. It really excited me and lifted my spirits like, OK, this is definitely the place I need to be. The collaboration and the artistic environment and creative environment just sounds amazing and it's like, I need to be there. I, I want to go to there. And that it just helped my comfortability. So if you know someone that's already living in L.A. and you're thinking about moving here, definitely reach out to them. Even maybe you haven't talked to them in a while. Reach out to them and maybe start up a conversational relationship again where you can call every now and then and just see what they're doing. And maybe that will aid in your comfort in moving. You'll feel better about it, maybe more on point with it or that it's, you know, that it's the right thing to do. So that's just a really interesting way, I think, to be a part of L.A. without being in L.A. And it's kind of like a long distance, you know, starting a long distance relationship. So I think that's that's just a really cool way to do it. So just think about that. If there's somebody you can reach out to in L.A., I would highly suggest you do it. Just remember, if you have any thoughts about this episode or about previous episodes or, again, any pictures to share with us that of your hustle that you want us to share on Instagram and Twitter, please email us at HollywoodHustlePodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to talk to people and chat with people on uh, Twitter at LA HustleCast and Instagram at Hollywood Hustle Podcast. Next week, Michael joins the conversation with Mike and I. It's going to be two Michaels again and one Daniel. And we talk poetry and how poetry has evolved and is poetry still relevant and how really poetry lives on in every medium and every conversation. There is poetry. We discuss that. We actually read some of Mike's uh, poetry from his new collection that he's working on. 
We talk about filming in LA and what you need to do and what the hardships are with doing that and how it works and how you can get in trouble filming in LA and how you don't get in trouble in uh, filming in LA. So definitely take a listen. It's going to be a lot of fun. So much more we talk about in act two with Mike and Michael. I can't wait for you guys to come back. Thank you so much. And as always, please remember to keep up the hustle. This episode of the Hollywood Hustle podcast was hosted by Daniel Tuttle and produced with Michael Lutheran and Mike Tobias edited our website. For more information about the show, please visit our website at hollywoodhustlepodcast.com.